Thank y'all so much for giving. Thank you for being with us today. And if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, we're going to open up the Second Kings chapter 5 today and get right into um, our reading this morning. We'll just read one verse to get us started, then we'll read some more of this chapter um, in just a little bit. Uh, so I'll give you a moment to find your place. Second Kings, kind of in the middle of the Old Testament. You go past First, Second Samuel, First, Second Kings. We'll be right after that. Uh, jumping in to God's Word, um, one of my favorite stories. Hopefully, uh, will become one of your favorites uh, today. Uh, one that I'm sure you won't soon forget. God's Word tells us now: Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master. Because of him, the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now, I'm pretty sure that no matter what translation you're reading in this morning, uh, the last part of that verse in your Bibles, where there's a comma, uh, you'll see the words, but he was a leper. There may be a few that put but at the beginning of that sentence, but that's not good English. So um, we'll uh, go with the one that we just read. Um, but in your Bibles, you see that phrase, that word, but you kind of know that no matter all the good things that you just read, something's about to change the tone of the story. Uh, you know, I don't know if there's another word in the English language that has the power to flip the script completely, has the power to change the tone of a statement, uh, completely turn whatever you're reading on its head. Sometimes, you know, people are going on and on and on about something, and then they say the word but, and you kind of perk up because they're about to say, I'm going to undo all that with, with this next few words. Now, it can go either way, positively or negatively. However, it's usually in the negative sense, I think, uh, that people will say, and here's a list of accolades and accomplishments, but there's this one thing that's not so hot. Uh, here's all these good things and all these positive things and all of these, you know, bullet points of why you, you, you should, uh, you know, be, you know, uh, uh, have confidence or, or, or be uplifted, but... There's something you should know. And usually that something you should know kind of brings the, the mood down a little bit. Now, you know, in worst case, nightmare scenarios, you know, when you're trying to make a significant purchase, I think this is really, really where, where the butts kind of really aggravate us. Uh, you know, if you're buying a new home or a new car or a new computer, anything that, you know, you don't just make a light decision about, uh, anything that, that requires a lot of, you know, research and a lot of time and you got to go somewhere and spend a whole day, you know, looking and talking to people, uh, you know, you, you think you found the one, you, you think you finally arrived at your decision, but that somebody drops this bomb on you uh, about something that, that you didn't know or you couldn't tell, obviously, uh, from what you were looking at, and it kind of breaks the deal down. Uh, and sometimes that, that but, that one negative thing has so much power that it overshadows and undercuts all the positive things. And, and, and you know, you, you were there, you were on board, you were ready to sign the deal, and, and then they say, but hey, here's this one thing, and you're thinking, hey, I'm done, right? You walk out. You know, you were about to buy the car, and, and they say, but by the way, and, and you think, hey, I'm not going to do it, right? You get up and walk out, even after you spend all day long, you know, doing all the dealing and all the talking and all the willing, you, you, you say, hey, I, I, can't, I can't accept that. Uh, you know, 
no offense to anybody that is a salesman or saleswoman out there, but, but you know, if you're trying to sell something, especially if it's used or if, if it's just uh, got something a little bit wrong with it, uh, you know, and we've all, I think, have, we've all tried to sell something secondhand before, and we all try to kind of embellish the things about the thing that, that we, you know, we know might break the deal down, so we always talk about the positive things. We, we've all tried to sell something before, um, but, but there's nothing sleazier than, than the experience of trying to, you know, you're looking into something, and, and then they bring up the elephant in the room and you're like, oh, wow, uh, you know, and, and the pictures were hiding it or, or the pictures you couldn't see it. Uh, you know, we've all had that moment before where we were looking at a used car, used product, and maybe the pictures made everything look great. Uh, and then you go and see it and you're like, what the heck is this? You know, it's, it's scratched up or it's smelly or sticky or whatever. I don't know. I don't know. That's some bad, bad situations if you're looking at a car that's got all that stuff going on with it. But you've all been there, right? You know, you were ready to do the deal and, and then you realize, well, it doesn't crank. Well, that's not, that's not going to work. Uh, or, or there's some things inside that just aren't really what they, they were advertised to be. And I think all of us have had that kind of situation, experience before. We thought we found something, but we just can't look past that one thing. Uh, maybe you've been on the other side where you were trying to get something off your hands uh, and you kind of knew that there was something you needed to kind of hide or something you needed to kind of, you know, get it out the door before they found out that thing about it. Uh, and you weren't trying to be dishonest. You were just trying to trying to make a deal, right? Uh, but but they, they just couldn't pay for it considering the blemish or the imperfection and, and, and you kind of understood. Now, probably everybody here has watched, you know, one of those um, home buying shows before, HGTV, um, where you know, people are house shopping and they've always got three or four homes they're looking at and they've always got a certain budget uh, and, and uh, they, they have some things that they can live with, things that they can't live without. Uh, they have their pros and their cons and, and, and they have to decide, hey, what are the buts, what are the cons that we can live with uh, if the price is right? Now, there, there's always that one house that people look at and, and it's an easy strike off the list, but then there's that one that, hey, they really like all these things and there's that one problem, but hey, can we make this work? And sometimes they can't. So, uh, 2 Kings 5 opens up by introducing us to a man named Naaman. We don't name our kids names like that anymore, do we? Naaman uh, was a Syrian or was a commander in the Syrian army, uh, one of the superpowers in the ancient world. Now, just a little bit of background information about Syria. Uh, the kingdom of Syria was one of the superpowers of the world at the time. Uh, and if you look in the back of your Bibles at the maps, or you have a Bible that has maps in the, in the, in the, in the chapters or in the passages, uh, you'll notice that Syria is this looming, threat north of Israel, uh, north and, and, and north um, uh, east of Israel, and, and Israel at this point in history is struggling. It is, uh, it is uh, having some rough days, and its glory days are well in the rearview mirror. Uh, Syria was breathing down its neck, looming uh, and looking to shore up land and, and try to bolster its power on the world stage and enslave people to be in its armies and, and help you know work its fields and work its uh, industries. Now, Syria had been invaded all the nations surrounding it for, for years, and, and Israel particularly, on a regular basis, um, every little bit, every month, every few months, Syria would invade and take a little more land and a load of people every advance. They would do a little bit more damage and take a little bit more off of Israel. And, and as, the, as the years went by, Israel's landmass got smaller and smaller, and its population dwindled from those that were killed, especially those that were enslaved. So Israel wouldn't dare fight against Syria. It would be a very foolish thing to, to go against Syria because Syria was at least 10 times um, as strong and 10 times as, as uh, with manpower and, and so forth. 
So Israel also, uh, not just being outnumbered, but they had been in a long conflict with the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, the, the Jewish people had been in civil war with each other for about 100 years. So Israel and Judah were warring against each other, and Syria was taking advantage of that vulnerability and was using that vulnerability and, and their depletion of resources and, and people uh, to, to make some inroads and, and, and kind of weed away um, at Israel's land. So if you read the first part of 2 Kings, that's kind of the situation that we're dealing with at this point in history. Israel is wounded, it is weakened, uh, and and you'll see all kinds of stories of this volatile time period. But what makes chapter 5 stand out, and why I think you should pay attention to it and think that it's pretty interesting, um, is there's basically a ceasefire in the middle of the story due to a very unique, kind of unprecedented situation. It's kind of like back in World War I when Germany and, and England called a truce on Christmas Day. And, and, and they walked across the line and they sang Christmas carols and smoked cigars with each other. And then the next day they were back killing each other. Um, it's kind of like that, but, but not really. So, so Syria, Israel, warring against each other, mortal enemies. But then all of a sudden, there's just a truce. Not because one king made a deal with another king, but because there was a problem within the life of one of the key Syrian leaders the commander of the Syrian army, a man named Naaman. And chapter 5 opens up and says, hey, this is the guy that's been doing all the damage. If you read the previous chapters, you read the previous book where Syria was making all these advances, this is the guy leading the charge. And chapter 5, verse 1 tells us that Naaman was a great and accomplished man. He was a mighty man of war. And it tells us, and this is kind of unexpected, he was favored by God. It says that because of him, God was given Syria victories. Now, this is where we all kind of, you know, with our theology and our belief systems as we have them, we kind of hit the brakes and say, whoa, 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 whoa. Naaman, the Syrian commander, was favored by God? That just doesn't fit into the way that we see the the world or see the Bible. Uh, God favored one of Israel's enemies? This is such a really important part, and I think this is a really cool addition to the Bible that, that helps us see how we fit in. Shouldn't God have been against the man who was leading a charge against his people? I mean, even if his people were not where they should be, you would think God would still be against the armies who were against his people, right? Now, now you, you people may say, well, well, maybe Naaman was a believer. Maybe he had faith. Naaman had never even so much given thought to the Jewish God. He had never even heard of the God of Israel before this chapter. So it wasn't that he was believer, a believer. And if he was a believer, he wouldn't have been doing this damage to begin with. The verse tells us that God favored Naaman and was prospering Syria on his behalf. Now, this isn't really the sermon, but I think it kind of, you know, warrants a, a pit stop. We find out that God had his eye on Naaman because he wanted to use Naaman to show off his power. And all of that was a natural overflow of his genuine love for Naaman. Let me, let me stress this. Naaman was the commander of the enemy army. Naaman had never prayed a prayer to the Jewish God. Naaman was not a believer. Yet the Bible tells us that God favored Naaman so much that he was given Naaman victories over the people of Israel. You know what, why I think this is something we should pay attention to? And this might kind of break the way you see the world, but I think it's a good, a good uh, frustration or it's a good intervention. 
We should be careful declaring where God's favor is or isn't based on what we decide is right or wrong. Because if I was writing the story, and if you were writing the story, of course God doesn't favor Naaman. Naaman's the enemy. Naaman's the bad guy. Naaman's the pagan. (laughs) Naaman's doing the damage to the people of God. There's no way that God loves or favors this guy. You know what that tells us? We should be careful. I'm not saying we can't make, you know, declarations based on how we read the Bible and how we know the Bible. I'm just saying be careful where you say God's favor is or where it isn't based on how we see the world because the way we see the world is Naaman's bad, Naaman doesn't deserve anything, so Naaman shouldn't get anything from God. Yet that's the point. That's the point. God's favor does not go or reside where it's deserved or where it's earned. God's favor often goes where it's least deserved and where it's least expected. Because you know what the, the real cool thing? Naaman didn't know he was favored by God. Naaman just thought he was a good guy and had a lot of strength and had a lot of good things going for him. Naaman didn't know that God favored him. Naaman didn't know that God was the one doing all this stuff for him. Naaman just thought, hey, I'm a pretty, I'm a pretty thrifty guy. I'm a pretty strong guy, pretty wise guy. I'm prepared for this. I deserve this. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. The, the ir- irony and, and really the awesome part of the story is that Naaman was favored by God. And again, we would say he wouldn't be favored, yet the moral of the story is that God's favor often goes and usually goes where it's not deserved and where it's least expected. It's called favor because without favor, we would be in hot water. The most unfavorable of conditions. It it turns out Naaman was in some pretty uncharted waters himself. Not only was he outside the Jewish covenant, not only was he outside the Jewish family and faith without any connections of organically coming to God, uh, but the end of the verse tells us that things were looking pretty grim for him. Despite all the great, favorable, and mighty things on his side, Naaman was a leper, right? The verse says, but he was a leper. He was a great guy. He was a favored guy in the eyes of his king, in the eyes of God. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now, a little bit of information about leprosy. I know that's why you all came this morning. Leprosy was and is a skin condition that's pretty, that's more similar to skin cancer than anything else, if we want to kind of put it in in a view that we can understand it. It would start as an irritation or an infection on the surface, but it would sink deep into the cells and would spread hypodermically. And when you understand the way the ancient world was in the Middle East, where the sun was very hot, beaming down, people didn't know what we know about skin and and, and the danger of the sun, the danger of exposure, it kind of makes sense why they dealt with this in this part of the world, uh, you know, a lot way back when. Um, It would start as an irritation, uh, again, on the surface, it would spread uh, inwardly. Now, where it would really cause problems is that it would create sores and vulnerable spots on the skin. And with things being so unclean, they were so unsanitary, they didn't know any better uh, in the ancient world, the greater risk of affection was so severe. There were no tetanus shots back in the day. So if you were struck by a sword or you were bitten by an animal, uh, you, you were pretty, you were done for if you had leprosy. Uh, if you had a small infection on the skin, if you were struck by a sword, even so swiftly, if you were uh, exposed to anything that was just unsanitary or unclean, um, you were looking at losing a limb, you were looking at losing limbs, which is why leprosy was so fatal and usually was 
pretty hopeless. Uh, this is also why lepers were cast out. You probably know lepers as kind of a derogatory term because in the Bible, those that were lepers lived outside in camps with other lepers, right? The, the people that, that were lepers in the days of Jesus, they were told to be away from everyone else. The reason why is because it was so contagious and because everybody knew that, knew that it was this unknown around it and this and there's risk around it that they didn't want to take any chances. Uh, people were so afraid of catching this disease and they knew it had something to do with contact and something to do with exposure of skin. With everybody's skin being exposed, sensitive and vulnerable, everybody had sunburns, everybody had wounds that weren't dressed up like they should be. Now you probably understand why everybody was on edge and why people were iffy about being around lepers and didn't want to be around lepers. And, and the, the consensus back in the ancient world was, let's just put them all in the same place. And, and again, that was kind of inhumane and kind of awful to think about, but that's just what they did because they didn't know what else to do and, and how else to handle it. Unless you were someone like Naaman. See, Naaman had the power and the resources to hide it. Not just keep it from people, but Naaman had the ability to meticulously and carefully conceal it and protect himself. Naaman, being in the army, being a soldier, he would always wear pretty heavy uh, you know, armor. He would be pretty well protected. But it also made what Naaman was doing for a living very dangerous and even more vulnerable and walking on eggshells. Uh, because if, one of his, if a sword struck him through his armor, through his mail, uh, if he wasn't you know, duly protected, um, he'd be at great risk and he, and he would be pretty much done for. Uh, he was one arrow away, one strike away, one bloodbath away from the end. And this is what makes Naaman's story so appealing and, and so uh, uh, interesting. From the outside, Naaman appeared invulnerable, unstoppable, and unbeatable. I mean, read about it. He was a mighty man. He was a great man. He was favored. I mean, this is the guy. This is the one who's leading the charge. He was, the, he was the, probably the highest paid man in the country. He was the most well-known man next to the king in the country. He was the guy doing all the battle and doing all the winning. He was the one everybody, you know, when you watch the news in the morning, this is the guy that's on the, on the screen getting all the roses, getting all the accolades. If you're a Syrian, this is your guy. So from the outside, if you're a Syrian citizen, you're watching the news and reading the paper, Naaman is the, is the, is the hero. Naaman's invulnerable. Naaman's unstoppable. Naaman's unbeatable. But on the inside, nobody was more aware of Naaman's weaknesses than himself. And no, there was no greater weakness than the one that Naaman had. But here's the secret. Nobody knew about it. We don't know the details. It's likely underneath his armor, Naaman had wrapped himself in certain parts of his skin in thick bandages, uh, which would have made simple tasks all the more complicated. And probably at first, it was just certain spots on his hands or on his arm. But as it began to spread and as he began to lose control of it, it became where it was inhibiting him from going on the battlefield. It was probably keeping him from putting on the armor like he needed to. So it became something that he could not ignore anymore, that he could not let fester any longer. Uh, that, that Naaman, uh, again, wrapping himself in these bandages and these, in these cloth, uh, it, it would have made simple tasks all the more complicated and they had to be replaced so often because of uh, uh, kind of just how gross it was. Naaman could never attempt a normal activity without a glaring reminder of his condition. With all his successes, perhaps that weighed on him, what weighed on him the most was this one thing that nobody else knew about. You know, unlike when you're trying to sell something and you sort of have to give detail of all the potential problems with the home or the car that you're trying to sell, Naaman is kind of a lot like us. When it comes to ourselves, when it comes to ourselves, we don't often go promoting our weaknesses, do we? 
We don't go out there and advertise all the things that are not as we wish they would be about us. We try to dress them up. We try to embellish them a little bit, right? Now, I, I think in today's world, it's a little more in vogue to be transparent, and I'm glad that's awesome. Uh, but most of us, we still are a little bit too proud uh, and also worried of the ramifications, right? We don't want people to know that we might have this weakness or this problem because it might hurt our chances of getting the deal or getting in the door that we want to get through. So in our resumes and on our, you know, on our profiles, we promote what we think are good things or accomplishments or accolades or strengths or, or positives. Uh, th- there's something in us that says, I probably need to list all my trophies. I need to show off all my strengths. I-, I need to make myself look as good as I can. So Naaman checked all the boxes, but the text tells us what only he knew, what he surprisingly was able to keep secret, secret for years. Naaman was a leper. Naaman may have been more accomplished than anyone on the battlefield, but he couldn't really have a life outside of war because if he was anywhere normal, if he was in normal clothes, the bandages and the cloths would be impossible to ignore and hide. The smell, and again, I know this is kind of gross, but the smell of leprosy would be so strong that nobody would be able to, to everyone would know this guy isn't, this guy isn't okay. The bulky armor he wore on the battlefield concealed his weaknesses, uh, but it was also a reminder to him that there really wasn't a life outside this condition for him. As great as he was, as popular as he was, he was really on borrowed time. And everybody may have cheered Naaman on as a hero, but inside you have to wonder. Everybody may have cheered him on as a hero, but if anybody would have known what was under his armor, nobody would be cheering for him because nobody cheered for lepers. Nobody cheered for lepers. They ran from lepers. And again, that's so awful to think about, but that was the world. They ran from them. They pointed at them and screamed, horrified that they may get infected. But remember, God loved Naaman. Why did God love this man? This guy didn't even know who God was, but God did. God loved Naaman. God favored Naaman. And even though Naaman hadn't realized it yet, God had a plan to do for Naaman what he was unable to do by himself for himself. As strong as Naaman was, as capable and resourceful as he was, he needed divine intervention when it came to his greatest secret, his greatest weakness. So now that we all kind of know what's going on, I want to read the rest of Naaman's story. 2 Kings 5 verse 2 through 14. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and he brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel and she waited on Naaman's wife. So this young girl finds out Naaman's secret. She said to her mistress, if only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. He went in and told the king, Hey, king, I got a little secret I've been hiding, and I've been doing a pretty good job. Hey, remember me. I'm the mighty man of valor. I'm the guy that's been winning all the battles. But I got to tell you, I've got leprosy. And the king was like, Well, that's not good. And he said, But I've got, other, I've got new, good news. I've heard about a man in Israel, the nation we've been fighting, the nation we've been invading, the nation that we are at war with. I've heard that there is a man in Israel who knows his God so well that somehow, someway, he can heal people like me. So do you think we can work out a deal with Israel 
I know we're fighting them and having a war with them, but do you think we can work out a deal where I go there without anybody else hiding it, you know, secret in secret, and we kind of draw the weapons down for just a little bit, and we see if something might go in my favor. So the story goes that Naaman goes in, he told his master, verse 5, the king of Syria said, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So the king of Syria is thinking, man, I got to take care of Naaman. Naaman's my guy. Naaman's the one that's orchestrating all this. And I can't let the world know about Naaman being a leper because then it blows up everything that we've done and all the house of cards come falling down and I can't put him back on the battlefield and my people are unguided and the armies don't know what to do and everything falls apart. So I've got to take care of Naaman. So this was was priority one for the king of Syria. So the king of Syria says, hey, go now. I'm going to send a letter to the king of Israel. I got to figure out how to write this and how to make this sound okay so things don't look real fishy. And, oh, by the way, I'm going to send with you 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. Because you're going to need them, Naaman. But the money, that's not for you. That's for the king. So here's this whole entourage. Naaman goes into the king of Israel with all this money. And, and he brought the letter to the king of Israel, uh, 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 verse 6. Now be advised when this letter comes to you that I have sent Naaman my servant, servant to you that you may heal him of his leprosy. And, and it's just this weird thing like, what? Naaman? Naaman, the guy that's been killing, he's got leprosy. And the king of Israel just thought this was a big trap and a big setup. Why are you, why are we, why are you not invading us? Why is, what is going on? So it happened when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, am I God to kill and make alive? And this man sends a man to heal him of his leprosy. Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. So the king of Israel thought this is a setup. I mean, this is just the king of Assyria wanting to make quick work of all this and just get right to the heart of it, kill the king, take over the country. And the king of Israel says, I don't want anything to do with this. So it was that Elijah, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes and he sent the letter to the king. So Elijah finds out that this is going on. He says, you know what? I know Naaman wants to keep this on the down low. I know the king of Syria is worried about how this is all going to affect the whole grand scheme. So I'll keep this quiet. Let's just keep this from getting out. And nobody believes that. Nobody believed the letter that the king of Syria sent because that just sounds crazy. Um, So Elisha finds out about it. Maybe God told him. We don't know. And Elisha sends a letter to, to, to Naaman and to the king of Syria. Uh, or to the king of Israel, why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. And, and, and Naaman's like, well, I don't really care if there's a prophet in Israel. I just care if somebody can heal me. So the king of Israel's thinking, I don't know if this makes any sense. So just get out of here. And Naaman's like, I'm out of here. And, and you know, he keeps thinking somebody's going to blow the place up in a minute, and it never happens. So once it dies down, he's, he's just thinking, wow, we dodged a bullet. Meanwhile, Naaman makes his way. Verse at 9. Naaman went with his horses and his chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. So he has to go a long, long way to find Elisha, who lived out in the wilderness, way out, way out of, of, of Dodge. And Elisha sends a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. So he never even meets Elisha, or not yet. And Naaman became furious and went away and said, Indeed, I have said to myself, He will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. So this guy, surely he's going to come out with a magic wand or some kind of, you know, big big spell or some kind of big, you know, uh, uh, ceremony and he's going to heal me, right? Because, uh, of course, there's going to be pomp and circumstance to it. I'm naming after all. And then he's kind of really uh, took, took aback. Are, there not, are not the Abana and the Parfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than the waters of Israel? I mean, Israel is really kind of the, the dumping ground. Uh, the waters are nasty. 
could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. But his servants came near and said, my father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, just go wash and be clean? Naaman, you're in pretty bad shape. Your, your days are numbered. People are going to find out. You're not going to be here much longer. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the men of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. This has been one of my favorite stories for a long, long time, from the way that God uses the Hebrew servant to inform her enemies. I mean, literally, the people who enslaved her, they didn't even offer her freedom in return. I mean, talk about a man favored by God. He could have done the right thing and thought, wow, I should take you back to your family. He doesn't even do that. I mean, he's clearly not a good guy. <laughs> yeah, you're staying here. You're still my slave, but I'll take your advice. And that's just crazy how God still worked out this for him, even though he wasn't concerned about doing the right thing at all. He was just caring about himself. God still works this out. Then the king of Syria thinks that there's an invasion. Uh, the, 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 the king of Israel thinks there's a setup. The king of Syria halts an invasion to do a favor for his number one commander. I mean, it's just so crazy. You could not, uh, you could not script this. You could not make this up. It's so unprecedented. So then Naaman goes into the wilderness, finds Elisha. Elisha won't even come outside, slides a note under the door, says, hey, go jump in the water. You'll be clean after seven times. I mean, Naaman's incredulous. He's insulted. I mean, who does Elisha think he is? I mean, who does he think he's dealing with? I mean, we literally called a ceasefire to, 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 against his people to come here. And then Naaman's servant. I love Naaman's servants in all this. Naaman, I know you're somebody. I, I, know, I know you're great. But as great as you are, your weakness and your wounds are much greater at this moment. You really don't have any, any, any you know, leg to stand on it, I mean, uh, in this. You're about to not have anything to stand. You're about to be in rough shape. So Naaman, with no other options, no other choices, goes down to the Jordan, takes off his armor in the middle of the wilderness. Nobody's within a couple miles of the place. He begins unwrapping the bandages. He goes into the water and he comes out brand new. I mean, it makes no sense. And it made no sense to him. It made no sense to him, but he submitted and he applied. And in the end, he understood why. He understood why Elisha asked him to do it. Not only because it healed him and restored him, but it made him aware of something even more important. And look at verse number 15. And he returned to the man of God, he and all of his aides, and he came and stood before him, and he said, indeed, now I know, not that I'm better or that there's, there's healing power in the Jordan River. What does he say? Now I know that there is a God, there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Naaman didn't go to Israel to find out this. He went for himself. He went as selfish as you could be. But when he got out of the water, only thing on his mind was, now I know there is no other God but the Lord Yahweh of Israel. Isn't that amazing? You see, Naaman, all of his victories, all of his successes carried him to great heights in the world, but only his weakness allowed him to see and find and know the God of this world. Isn't that incredible? All of his victories and all of his successes, they took him to great heights and great stature, but only his weakness allowed him to know the God of the world. Now, in case you're wondering, this is part three 
in our We Believe series. I just couldn't find any better depiction and demonstration of our third confession than the story of Naaman as he was renewed and restored in the waters of Israel. Naaman had a lot going for him. He had one thing, one major thing working against him. His leprosy, no doubt, a picture of the sin that is in all of us, a picture of the weaknesses that we all have that stems from the sinful nature that we all are born with, a weakness in our flesh, a weakness in our minds, a weakness in any area of our life. It could be a weakness that you have emotionally, a weakness that you have mentally, a weakness that you have sinfully. It could be any sort of weakness. We all have them because all of us have something inside of us that we all like to hide and try to conceal, but we all know it's there. <laughs> Any weakness, all weaknesses that we have remind us that no matter how strong we are or able we are, we all struggle against the disabling and binding power of sin. Naaman's encounter with God showed him that only through knowing the one true God could he overcome his weaknesses, could he be renewed from them and in spite of them. So all this leads us to our third confession. We believe redemption leads to a relationship with Jesus, which leads to our renewal and restoration unto life as God intended it. Naaman's flesh was renewed, it was restored, it was regenerated. When he came out of the waters, his confession was that God had not only healed him, but God revealed himself to him and that he was renewed to a life that he had never lived before. His confession shows that the message of the story is not just about a physical healing. It's deeper than that. This shows that his flesh was restored. His heart was also renewed. He was filled with new life, a new lease on life, a new desire for life. This is obviously a picture of Christian baptism, which itself is a picture of our renewal, our inner transformation that takes place when we start following Jesus and start a relationship with him. Romans 6 verse 4, you're all familiar. It says, we are buried therefore by baptism unto death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life or in renewed life. A few things here. Baptism is not just a picture of us being, uh, but us, of us being renewed, but a picture of us being buried at first. And listen, our sin isn't doesn't make us bad. Our sin makes us dead. Our sin makes us lifeless. Our sin and our weaknesses were as good as gone, defeated, disabled, and buried. Yet the work of redemption brings us back to life. So you could say Christianity isn't about making bad people good. It's about making dead people come back to life. In Christ, we find the ability to live as we were always meant to be, supposed to live, and have always longed to live. Naaman was living two lives for so long, hiding something that was so, so deadly and, and, and so detrimental. He leaned on this world as long as he could, but he could not any longer. He needed to be renewed from within. In that process, he discovered something even greater to live for. He realized that God had a better, fuller life available to him. I want to show you a couple verses that really uh, communicate this very powerfully, but I would like for you to turn in closing over to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to read a few verses before we get out of here. And I think this is the chapter I, I hope you can bookmark and I hope you can study this because this really speaks to the renewal that God wants to do in your life as a Christian the renewal that God can do in your life as a Christian. Uh, but as you turn, there are a couple of verses I want to show you and that you could also remember. Romans 6, 11, 
So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So in Christ, we've been buried in our baptism, buried in our sin, and we've been raised to new, restored life. We've been renewed to life as God always intended us to have it. Another verse that we quote so often, John 10, 10. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, let me make this very clear. Abundant life doesn't refer to prosperity or health or wealth or worldly accomplishments. Naaman had all that stuff before he ever met God. Do you see that? Naaman was was wealthy and prosperous. He didn't need God to have those things. And abundant life doesn't mean that God's going to give you those things. Abundant life is something better than that. Abundant life refers to the life that God enables us to live when we understand what it really means to live. The life that we can live as Christians. Knowing Jesus and living as he intends us to live. And Colossians 3 really unpacks what it means. To live as a Christian. Follow along with me in this passage, verse 1 through 11. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So God has something better for us than material things, than material life. Yeah, he'll bless us, but that's not what we live for. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So our our life is about tethering us to God and God in heaven. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passions, or, or passions of this world, evil desires, covetousness, or greed, idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these things, anger and wrath and malice and blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Strive to put, since you have put off the old man with his deeds and you have put on the new man. And that, that's the new creature, verse 10. Underline this. Put all, you've put on the new man who is renewed in the knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Renewed in the knowledge of the image of God where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, all the labels of this world, they're gone. But Christ is all and in all. Again, if you want to study a passage about what it means to be renewed, this is the one for you. The, The life that God gives us in Christ transcends and surpasses all that this world offers us and invites us to settle for. It invites us past the sins and weaknesses that we often excuse. I want to give you Three things to remember about the renewal process that God wants to give you in Christ. Three things to remember, that, and I hope it can frame how you understand your renewal experience and the renewal process. Our renewal in Christ reminds us that we were designed by God, that we are being prepared by God, and God wants to direct us, and we need to be directed by God as we live out our days. Verse 10 really is the one that, that anchors this passage. Put on the new man, or, and that doesn't mean man as, as gender. It means the, you know, the new human, the new identity, the new creature that you are in Christ. Put on the new man, the new woman, who is renewed in the knowledge according to the image of him who made him. Our new self. Our new self is really all about being renewed and restored to the image of God in which we were created but have never been able to live up to or fully realize. The Bible teaches that we were made in the image of God, but 
back when Adam fell, all of humanity fell with him. So much that when Adam and Eve sinned and they had kids, the Bible says that they still were in the image of God, yet they were also in the image of Adam. They were also in sin. And as they still had God's thumbprints on them, we still have God's thumbprints on us. Adam's sin runs rampant in us and it keeps us from living as God intended. Our new life, it comes from God, so we need to understand it's been designed by God. Now, if you've ever designed something, if you've ever built something, have you ever been frustrated when you give it to somebody else and they misuse it or they don't understand how to use it and you just want to go and show them, you just want to go take their hands off of it and say, no, this is how it's done, right? Isn't it demoralizing when you have made something or helped build something or produce something and others take it and don't understand it? That's what it's like when God gives us this life and we don't take full advantage of it. And we don't depend on his design. That's why Colossians 3 opens up with this plea. Turn your eyes on the Lord. Seek him. Set your minds on him. Set your affection on him. That's why Jesus said, make your investments in God and in heaven. Tether your heart to him. Because you need his direction. Abundant life is not about us living a fun and fancy free life, doing whatever we want to do with a ticket in our pocket for when we die. Abundant life is about realizing, about stepping into the life that God has designed you for and being fully realized by his spirit's power, being transformed by his grace and his will. Famously, Romans 12 invites us to do just that. I appeal you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. When we submit to his will, we also realize that God is preparing us for a new life one day at a time. We don't figure it out all at once. We don't figure it out in a minute or in an afternoon or in a church service. But every day, we begin to see it come together. It's just like when you cook something. There's a lot of ingredients that goes along with that cooking process, right? And you put a little bit in at a time, and you let it prepare. You put a little bit more in at a time. And sometimes it takes several hours to get it all done. Lots of pieces have to come together. And also, when you prepare dinner, it usually involves going in a hot stove, doesn't it? It usually involves going onto a hot oven. And this is important. Sometimes part of the preparation process involves intensity, pressure, and fire. Being made new and better and stronger by the pressure of this life. Just like Naaman, he would have never been renewed if he had not struggled under that weakness and under that disability. The struggles you're going through, the trials you're facing. Listen, you may say, well, God doesn't want me to face those things. God, is not, God doesn't want me to suffer. God uses those trials to prepare us, to renew us, to refine us, to make us worry what he wants us to be. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says that we don't lose heart. Our outer self is wasting away, but our inner self, there's our word, being renewed day by day. Though this light affliction... This light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, it may, it may not feel light to you. It may feel heavy. It may feel like it's a big burden on your shoulders. And I'm not saying it's not. But compared to what God is preparing you for, it's worth it. Just ask Naaman. So don't begrudge the pressure. The pressure is important for the process of preparing you. Lastly, our new life, our renewal is something that we need God's direction on forever and ever. 
We don't just need instructions once. We have to constantly lean on him. Notice here in verse 5, Paul says, put to death or put off these things. And then in verse 8, again, it says, put off these things. And then down in verse 12, he says, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on these things. Pay attention to these, these, these verses. Again, verse 5 and 8, lay aside, take off. Verse 12, put on these things instead. Look at verse 12. He says, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against you, as Christ forgave, you must also do. But above all these things, put on love, the bond of perfection. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with the grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You know what that tells me? And I want you to study this. This is so important. If we've been renewed and we've been restored, we will look like it, sound like it, and walk like it. There's no question about it. When Naaman got out of the water, he was different. He looked different, right? And, and again, it wasn't a one-time experience. I love that it was seven times because that's, that's a lifetime. That's a process, isn't it? It wasn't, hey, he went under, he came back up, and he never, never did anything wrong again. It was a process, and that's the picture of our life. Renewal, our renewal, our restoration, it's one day at a time. It's one preparation at a time. And what God is doing is that we might arrive at this place in verses 12 through 17 where we put on the new, the new nature, the beloved nature that God God has made us in and remade us in. But no question about it, we will look like it, sound like it, and walk like it. You know, God cares so deeply about how we behave as Christians because that's what translates into our witness. There are no silent witnesses. There are no secret Christians. Naaman may have concealed his sin, but when he left the water, he was bold about his new faith. He was bold in his confession. Now I know. If we've been renewed, everybody will know. More importantly, everybody will feel it as we live around them. You know, we like to project our strength, but as Christians, our strength is our life in Christ. If we're following him, his virtues will follow us. Notice how Paul uses this metaphor of taking off one outfit and putting on another outfit. Again, take off these things, uh, uncleanness and impurity and greed. Take off anger and wrath and malice and filthy language and all the things that you used to be about and put on these new things, these virtues of love and humility and kindness and patience. Just like Naaman took his armor off and he came out of the water with new clothes put off the impure and immoral mind. Put off the worldly passions. Put on the compassionate hearts and kindness and humility. A mind that settled on Christ's rule will honor him with their life. So it's time for another question as we wrap up. Have you, have you been renewed with new life in Christ? Have you taken up and put on your new life in Christ? Has your relationship led to renewal? Are you different? I'm not saying you don't know Jesus. I'm not saying you haven't been redeemed. Very well, you, you may have. But if you've been redeemed, if you have a relationship, then the next step is you will be renewed with this new life. 
Is it evident? Is it obvious? Does your mind and heart process things differently? Do your actions and life prove that you've been renewed? Can you say, based on your experience, now I know there is a God who lives for me. Now we know that the people of God have been renewed by the power of God. The good news is if you need to step back in the waters and be renewed and refreshed and revived, the Holy Spirit says, hey, come on back. You can come as many times as you need to. It's a lifetime process, truthfully. If you've taken up an old bat, an old habit again, if you've taken up an old weakness again, if you've allowed something to bind you again, God invites you just like he invited Naaman. God loves you just like he loved Naaman. Listen, there was nothing that Naaman did to earn God's love. God loved him anyway, and he invited Naaman to come and be made new. If you're a believer and you've never lived a life that is in line with his word, the Bible says, come. We all struggle, we all stumble, but we all need that new restoration, that that renewal we all constantly need to come back into the waters. Jesus promised that all who trust in him and believe in him can count on this. He says, if you're a Christian, that there is a, if you drink of this world, you'll be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up. So as a Christian, that water, that refreshing, that renewal process is always being done and taking part in you. You can be renewed for the first time or another time. And let's just be honest. All of us have got some stuff about us that we think, well, I can't help it. It's always been there, but I wish I could do something about it. And maybe, maybe you don't acknowledge it's a problem, but somebody close to you acknowledges it's a problem and it's a point of contention for you. And, and your response to them is, oh, it's not a problem, but you know deep down it is, don't you? They tell you, you, you need to work on this. And you think, yeah, yeah, you need to work on you. We both do. But all of us know that we need to be renewed and restored and refreshed and revived in Christ. And we can be if we'll just come and let Jesus do his work. It begins by seeking Christ above, setting your mind on him and finding your life in him and refusing to look elsewhere or settle for less. This chapter invites us to set your mind on him, seek him, find your life in him and refuse Refuse to look elsewhere. Refuse to settle for less. If you've been renewed, you know. And you know you can't put on anything less than his life, his spirit, and his glory. But if you haven't ever experienced this process as a Christian, you believe in Jesus and you do the best you can to follow Jesus every day, but there's never been a renewal, there's never been a restoration, there's never been a change in your life, that change can start today. You can put on the new take off the old. You can come out of the waters brand new. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the promise and the invitation that you've given all of us today that we might could find in Christ the life that we so desperately want. All of us, all of us struggle. We all stumble under the weight of this world. All of us have weaknesses. All of us have Vices, all of us have sins that we either hide or conceal or maybe it's got to the point where we can't hide them anymore. All of us have things that sometimes we return to after months or years of of, of being free. 
It could be a mental, it could be an emotional, it could be something just blatantly out in the, out in the open. God, you know those things that we struggle with, but the promise of, of Christianity is if we've been redeemed, if we have a relationship with Jesus, we can be renewed we can find new life in Christ. We can put off the old and put on the new. Lord, I pray that you would search the hearts of the people today. If somebody here would confess they haven't put on all the new that they can, if somebody here would confess that they haven't stepped into abundant life, they're still leaning on something in this world and it's getting a little bit shaky, it's getting a little bit unstable, unsustainable. Lord, let them come today to the well that never runs dry and be renewed and restored and the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, start that work in all of us that we might put on the new and we might walk like it and talk like it and sound like it and that we would know and that all around us would know there is a God in their heart and he is giving them life. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.